0: I invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we return to our study. It's been some time since we've been here, but God willing, we'll make progress through the rest of the book this year. We finished. At the end of chapter three, so we're into Chapter Four, and we want to it may be wise for us to read from verse seven of chapter three into chapter Four, because there's a there's a lot of connection between the two chapters that we don't want to miss or forget so Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said today, If you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was He grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear He that they should not enter into His rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. We'll end there midway through the third verse. Let's bow together in prayer, beloved. Let's seek the Lord for His help. God, we are thankful for that open invitation that Christ presents to sinners, that He calls them, if any man thirst, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. We pray that those of us who have come will keep on coming, that we'll never stop the practice and privilege of going to Christ. Was that not what we were taught by the manna that came from heaven, that it wouldn't last day after day after day? They couldn't store up, but they needed to come every day because we are to go to Christ every day we pray especially for those who have never gone, never sought the Lord while he may be found, never called upon him while he is near. We ask, O God, that thou will open their blinded eyes. Oh, we wish we could open them for them. We wish we could force them or make them, or we wish we had the precise thing that needed to be said. But, O God, thou knowest and what needs to be done is nothing short of a miracle. And we pray that should there be any here, that are coming short, that have not quite pressed in and sought Christ, we ask that this very day they may seek Him and call upon Him. So give us Thy presence. I surrender my heart to Thee and pray simply, Lord, take this weak and frail vessel and give it the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Give give us that governance. We're under God. We speak as the very mouthpiece of God. Grant it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, have you ever broken a promise? Have you ever said, I promise not to do this ever again, and yet you find yourself doing it again, maybe not all that long from the time when you said you wouldn't ever do it again? It is something, of course, that we're familiar with. Whenever children error, do something they shouldn't do, and sometimes we tend to talk to them in ways like, do you promise never to do that again? And we encourage them to make such a promise that they fail to keep. That we older folks also know what it's like to fail in the keeping of our word. and We also know what it's like to be in the receiving end of one that breaks their word. There is a pain to living in this world where promises are broken. It can make us cynical, can make us skeptical, can make us bitter, and even miserable. But what is worse is when we allow our disappointment towards others, or any other reason, to cause us to doubt God's Word. Because God has made promises. God has given such words of assurance that this is what He is going to do. And sometimes we project our experience in this world onto God and imagine that we can't trust Him just as we have found out we can't trust men. Well, God made a promise to the people that left Egypt, that generation, and He promised them, as He had said to their fathers, that they would have a land for themselves, that they should leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea, and go in and possess the land, and instead of believing God, whatever they saw, and whatever doubts filled their hearts, instead of just going on and believing His Word, that doubt controlled their actions. Worse than that, they sat under decades, decades of preaching, and were unmoved, unchanged. That's one of the fears that any sincere preacher has, is that the problem seen in that generation that left Egypt and wandered around the wilderness might be seen in their own day. People that are given the Word of God but don't seem to be transformed by it. In due course, we will get to the well-known verse in this passage, verse 12, "...the Word of God is quick and powerful." And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a, dis- is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And what we will find out is the reason that verse is there is, to, is because it's answering the question we have. How come? How come a generation of people do not bow to God? How come? They can't ignore His Word. Is there some deficiency in His Word? And the answer is resounding no. No. No, the problem is in them. The problem is always in man. We don't hear, or we may hear it as in we're aware of what was said, but we do not act. We do not respond. We do not believe. And that is the fear, as I say, any sincere preacher has, that he will live in a generation that is just like the generation that came out of Egypt. It is not unique to them. Hebrews chapter 3 dwells on that generation that did not enter into the promised land, but it does so not by going back to the original record. It does so by giving us the account given by David in Psalm 95. Which tells us something, and I think I pointed this out when we were looking at it. It tells us that that problem, that problem of having the Word of God, having promises from God and not believing them, was not unique to that generation that came out of Egypt. David writes Psalm 95 because the feeling he has upon his heart is that this is still a problem. We are still a people that God promises things to, and we will not take them at His word. We are still a people that refuse to believe God. And so he writes that psalm in his own generation, a long time after the generation that came out of Egypt. And then we have the apostle drawing from Psalm 95 and doing the same thing. And saying that this isn't just a problem that was faced in the generation that came out of Egypt. It's not just a problem that David saw in his generation. It's not something confined just to the Old Testament era. It's something that we still see. People who will not take God at His word. People who will not believe. People who will ignore the promises God has given Every generation faces the same danger. And what was true in the three generations we're looking at, those that come out of Egypt, those in David's time, the first century church in Hebrews is no different today. It applies not f- another generation right here that has to hear the same warning, has to be warned in the same fashion. Every generation faces the same Danger of missing out on God's blessing through nothing other than unbelief. That's how chapter 3 ends, isn't it? We see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, we looked at that chapter, as you know, already, so we're coming into chapter 4, but as I say, there's a, there is a strong connection. You look at verse 1. Let us therefore... And you all have heard it before, what's the therefore, therefore? It keeps the connection, keeps the building of the argument. And So we're going to, with the Lord's help, I was going to maybe look at just verses 1 and 2, but I think we can bring in also part of verse 3 before we proceed in the weeks to come into this chapter. But I've I've titled the message, and I've, I've tried to give it just a very simple idea, but also a sense of curiosity about it. Fall short of anything but this. All right? the chapter is basically saying, that these verses are laying out before you, fall short, feel free to fall short of anything but this. Now you can fall short in various ways and there can be ramifications, you can fall short of the required marks and a certain examination and it has a devastating effect upon your life but you'll recover. It won't have the same ramifications as we're discussing here. What we're discussing here is ramifications upon not just your life, not just temporary ramifications, but eternal ramifications, ramifications you can't undo. You don't get a do-over. You don't get to reset the exam. You don't get to change once you have failed here. So fall short of anything but this. Note with me three main headings here see the gravity of the present and we'll see also the graveyard of the past and the guarantee for the future. The gravity of the present, the graveyard of the past, and the guarantee for the future. So first, see the gravity of the present. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Let us hear first A grave call to fear. A grave call to fear. Let us therefore fear. Let us therefore fear. Now, it's been some time since we've been here, so in one sense you you might not make the connection. But if you were hearing this as a sermon, one singular linear stream of thought, or you were reading it from the beginning to the end, you might go back to chapter 2 and ask, well, what's this mean? Did he not say that, there isn't need for fear. Did He not say in verse 15 that Christ will deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage? Is there not a sense in which we have been delivered from what brings fear to our hearts? Or we might ask simply, does such a call to fear contradict passages like 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It's a call to fear. Now, I'll just pause. It, it seems like a simple concept, but there are few places today where you would have anyone get up and deal with fear in any positive way. If if in the average evangelical church today the topic of fear comes up, you can, you can rest assured they're saying, you don't need to fear. There's no need for fear at all. And they would just make fear always Absolutely, every time negative, and you need deliverance from every type of fear. All right, that's what you're going to hear. And yet, the apostle in his preaching is saying, Let us therefore fear. He's saying it under inspiration. Let us therefore fear. What does he mean? Is he misguided? Is he misunderstanding? Is he being unnecessarily foreboding? Well, Christ, He spoke to His disciples. He gave a certain aspect of fear that they were to have. Matthew ten twenty eight, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So he's saying there's 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 a place for fear. Paul also writes to the Romans in Romans eleven twenty, be not high minded, but fear. Paul, Peter also writes in First Peter one seventeen, pass the time of your sojourning here, and fear. I think this is language to God's people. They are all using it, calling us. To fear and even in heaven, we're instructed in Revelation 19:5 praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. So, you take right to the very end of almost Revelation, you have the same indication: fear, fear him, both small and great. So, not, not all fear is wrong. We might say there is a sinful fear, such as the fear of man. We know that the fear of man bringeth a snare. It's a very dangerous thing to fear man, and yet it's very common. It's not an uncommon thing. Many of you know the power of the fear of man. It's, it's what grips you when you're thinking, should I witness or not? And you're feeling this fear about what they might think or what the ramifications may be, and that's the fear of man. We're very, very familiar with that. There's also an evangelical fear, we might say, such as when we're taught that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, Of wisdom, or the beginning of knowledge. That's an evangelical fear. It's evidence of life in the soul. But there's also a motivating fear. A motivating fear. A fear that moves us, meant to move us, meant to to indicate we're to move in a certain direction. And that's what we have here. Let us therefore fear. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, no matter how many miracles these Israelites saw, and they saw many, I mean, think about it, they get right back to them being in Egypt and all the plagues. Never in the history of the world had there ever been such a concentrated display of omnipotence in the world, not least in the presence of men, the making of the worlds and all that. Well, we weren't there to witness all of that. But men witness God displaying his power here in a way that, as I say, had never been witnessed before. They should have been falling down and believing every word that he said, and yet they refuse. They refuse they stand at the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. But he not only parts the Red Sea and lets them pass, he closes it up again, destroying all their enemies in the process. I mean, they saw such... Amazing displays of divine power and grace and mercy. And yet they refuse to believe. Now, when you think of all that, we we imagine that, well, you know, if I was there in their shoes, I definitely would have believed. I mean, there's no doubt I would have believed. There's no way I'd be found among those unbelieving people. But again, the whole point of this passage is, is saying, look, that's not the case. There's a real danger in every generation what happened to them is not some strange, out-of-the-way, unusual event. Man's natural tendency is to disbelieve God. It doesn't matter how much of a display of divine power they have witnessed. And so, that's why he's saying, let us therefore fear. Let us fear. It is a call to assess the whole frame of mind of those receiving it. And you, you, by the Spirit of God, are receiving this Word. Don't sit back like, don't sit as if we're in an auditorium and the Hebrews being addressed are all there in the center and you're up on the, on the, the seating, watching it, seeing how they're going to respond or what God is saying to them. You're being addressed. You're being spoken to. God is not cutting you out of the warning here. So, when it says, let us therefore fear, it pulls all of us in. And it's, 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 so, it's so pointed, isn't it? Let us therefore fear. It is a shot past the ear of the careless. It is an arrow into the heart of the dull. It's a slap in the face for the sleepy, those who are just sitting there dull. What's he doing as he preaches this? He's, he's grabbing them, as it were, with his words. With his words, he's grabbing them by the lapels of their souls and he's shaking them and saying, Let us therefore fear. We don't want a repetition of this. It's the most petrifying thought that those I am addressing might end up like that generation. That's the heart of the apostle. This is sober. We're here to hear a nice sermon. <laughs> but I hope you hear a word from God. A real that you hear this is God's word to your soul. He is shaking you up. We've been called to have a certain frame of, of fear. Again, this is, this is not contradicting other passages It's not like we're... It's not a call to a slavish fear. All right. It's not a call to a slavish fear. Because, I mean, he he calls them brethren. He's been doing that repeatedly. He sees them within... He doesn't know which ones are most in danger. He, He puts his arm around the whole church, you know, calls them brethren, recognizes their outward profession. But it was the same for the Israelites that came out of Egypt. They all... Claim to be the people of God, give certain outward evidence of it, but there was a problem in the heart. So it's not slavish fear. It's not a slavish fear he's calling us to. I mean, he said, Let us fear. He's pulling himself in there. I want you to note that. Because later on, he's going to, he's going to not do that. He's going to. Any of you should seem to come short. So he changes. But he pulls himself in. Let us. This would this be good for me, me as a preacher. To remember this. So it's not, it's not a slavish fear. The slave has few rights. He can't be certain how he will be treated. But this is not true of those who claim to be the people of God. If you're a child of God, God has established the parameters of His dealings with His people. He has given them rights that have been bought by the blood of Jesus. The imputed righteousness of Christ gives us acceptance in the presence of God while our adoption puts the word Father upon our tongue. This is the position of the people of God, but, 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 addressing such a people in such a privileged place, God is still God. A being so unfathomable, inexplicable, inscrutable, and incomprehensible, we can barely grasp who it is we worship. Now, we're not without light, praise His name. And the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth His handiwork, and He has given His revealed will and His word, so we're not without light. But, but there's a magnitude to God, an immensity to God, that we can't get our heads around. And yet, yet, despite this, despite we can't plunge into all the depths of His being, we don't come like someone who's excited to learn, or we don't enter into His presence with a sense of, oh, that I'm gathered with God's people to worship God, how might He reveal Himself to me today? Instead, we gather for worship and we can be inattentive, negligent, forgetful. And if that if that reflects the nature of our heart, if, that, if that's giving evidence of what, or what, what I may say, the lack of any real spiritual activity in the soul, then there's there's, there's a real alarm that needs to go off. So many made assumption, you know, we be Abraham's seed. These promises are ours. Those, 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 those Israelites, having seen such a display of divine power and all, mostly it was all, shown toward their enemies. Instead of having a sense of we should have a certain fear toward him. In their, in their sinful boldness and pig-headedness, they start rejecting what he has to say, ignoring him. This is very, very dangerous. So Paul says, let us fear. Let us fear. Do you tremble? Do you tremble? Do you ever tremble? you ever tremble, again, like Jesus taught the disciples? Fear Him who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Do you, do you ever realize that's the God you're coming before? Now, again, the, the, the message of the gospel's there. It's, it communicates mercy and peace. And we'll see that in just a moment. But, but <laughs> listen, I'm just saying what it says. And it doesn't, get you, it doesn't come and say, did you make a decision for Christ? Well, I'm not addressing you right now. I'm addressing these other people who have ignored the Lord and ignored the gospel. No, no, no. He is addressing a people who are part of the visible church. He's addressing children like the children sitting here. He's addressing adults like the adults sitting here. He's addressing them all. Some who've recently come into the church and others who've been in it perhaps for years. He's addressing them all. He said, Let us there for fear... This is, this is a word to church members, every one of them. So, it's a grave call to fear. It's also a grave call to faithfulness. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Like I said, I, I like how the preacher moves from including himself to then <laughs> addressing those that are upon us heart, those he's addressing. He, I guess he knows where he stands. He knows that he is continuing to believe and he has entered in. Paul writes to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. And a believer can talk that way, but someone standing outside looking on, it, only the Lord knoweth them that are His. So I bring this word, and I don't look upon you and, and say, look, <laughs> most of you make a credible profession of faith, and I could accept your profession and then skip over a verse like this, a passage like this, and say, it's not really relevant. There's so few here that that applies to. We can afford to ignore it. But that's not what the apostle did, and that's not what we should do either. There's a danger. What is that danger? I have been given a promise, a promise of rest. They don't obtain it. They come short of it. What is the promise of rest? Is it the rest? that David was concerned about when he wrote Psalm 95. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, this is a quoting from Psalm 95, So I swear my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So, so he's, he's pulling there from that, and that was clearly that generation not entering into Canaan. But then David was applying it to his own generation. He's not just accounting history. He's not just documenting the past. He's also saying, this is a warning to us. So, there must have been another message behind that that promise of rest. It had to be. Otherwise, it's it's no relevant. David has no no grounds to bring it up and apply it to his own generation. His concern is that people are not entering into this rest, whatever it is. And now again, the apostle's doing the same. He is applying the same passage because... There is a promise of rest that is in some shadow seen in entering Canaan, but has spiritual reality that goes across generations. So what is this? What is this? This promise of rest? Lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Some say, well, it's just Christ, entering into Christ. So it's really just having Christ now, and if you have Christ, you've entered into the rescue; You've obtained the promise. Now, that's where I was initially. The issue with that is, most of Hebrews, when it deals with the idea of promise, does not talk about it now. It talks about something future. So go to chapter 6, verse 12 for a moment, just to you see this. Hebrews 6. Verse 12, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So it's through faith and patience they inherit the promises. The idea of faithful perseverance. Go to chapter 10. I'm just looking at two verses here. We could look at others, but these are clear. Hebrews 10.36 doesn't need much commentary. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. So I think it's clear that the idea of receiving the promise, obtaining the promise, is something future. So when you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, and you ask the question, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. It's, it's not just, okay, I've made a decision for Christ to have that promise, that promise of rest in Christ. There is something future, something eschatological, something that is to be fulfilled at another time, another period. And so then what he's driving at, follow me here, what he's driving at is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, that's something future, Any of you just seem to come short of it. That is, you've made profession, you claim to know it, but somewhere along that journey, you fall away, you go back. Remember, that is the danger. That's what he's addressing. A people, some of which are under immense temptation to step away, to move out of the Christian church and go back to Judaism. Judaism. And he's saying, well, if, if you do that, if you do that, you will have come short. You will not enter into rest. You will be like that generation. You will be like those that came out of Egypt. You, you seem to be making headway. You come out of Egypt. You cross the Red Sea. You're making some progress. But by and by, you come short of entering into that rest. Now, this happens all of the time. People drop off. People stop, they stall, they fade. And sometimes you look around and you wonder, where are they? Were they ever saved at all? So the key here is faithfulness, which which ties it back again to the beginning of chapter 3, just so you see all the pulling together and the consistency of thought. Chapter 3, verse 1, wherefore, holy brethren, Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Same idea with Moses that you find established. Go back, go to verse 6. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That's the thing. That's holding on to the end. That's what it is to enter into this promise of rest. It is, yes, to believe on Christ. Yes, to be part of the church. But it means carrying on continually, perseveringly, unto the very end. The danger is these people are being tempted to come short of it. And I'm, I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you, beloved, here, you do that. You, you can afford to come short in all sorts of areas. You can afford to come short in, in, in material things and all sorts of ways of measuring the success or failure of life. And you, can, you can afford to come short. You can't hear. And the point is, the Apostle is saying, Lest the promise being left also of entering into his rest, any of you should seem, should appear to come short of it. And he can't say for sure, but what he's calling them for, what he's calling them to, is don't leave it in doubt. <laughs> right? Don't leave it in doubt. Don't live your Christian life in such a way where we're all left wandering And you have reason to wonder Will I obtain that rest? Don't do that. Don't. No, no, the people do this. They, they live their life in some half-hearted fashion. They, they make a profession. They call upon the Lord. They say, Jesus is my Savior. And, and maybe even for a time, initially, with their profession of faith comes a zeal and energy and love and passion, and they can't get enough of church and enough of the Word and enough of prayer, enough of God's people, and they're trying to do outreach and reach people and all of that, and then it begins to wane. It begins to diminish. It begins to fade. And Sometimes it fades so much that people generally watch on and wonder. Certainly the oversight. <laughs> we'll, we'll do this. We will look and we'll wonder. Was the root of the matter ever there? What has gone on? What has happened? So, so, so the apostle is saying, Paul is arguing don't 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 even seem to come short of it don't make it so evident you're you're 100% all in for Jesus Christ you cannot be persuaded otherwise all in for the lord so we see the the past or the present gravity we want to see the past graveyard as well the past or the graveyard of the past I should say so there, you can see that what I'm getting at in verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Well, these are the same them that are pointed out for us in verse 17 of the previous chapter. With whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? The wilderness was a graveyard. A graveyard. Oh, so many, so many. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people buried there somewhere along the way in that journey. And some, some had come out of Egypt. They were, they were just, just 20, 21. And they'd they, they, they join in in this whole rebellion against God, refusal to believe His Word, refusal to take Him at His promise. God comes and says, you will never enter in. Those people, those people never got out of their fifties. Never got out of their fifties. There is a graveyard then, and it speaks. It speaks as a warning. These carcasses that fell in the wilderness... They, they teach us certain things. First, we might say what the Israelites had, what they had. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. They had the gospel. This first century church congregation obviously had the gospel preached to them. We know that. That's why they're there. That's why they are who they are, identifying as they do with the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had the gospel preached. We know that. That's evident. But, you know, some get confused and they start wondering, well, how did people in the Old Testament, how did they know God and was it by some different obligations? Was the message different? And various ideas. But (laughs) we're not saying everything was precisely the same, obviously. One was in shadow, the other's fulfilled. One's pointing forward, the other's pointing back to a finished work. But But the essence of the message is the same, ultimately. And you can encapsulate it in the same word, good news. The Israelites had good news preached to them, just like you've had good news. They had the good news of the Passover. That was good news, wasn't it? That was good news. When they were there in the final plague, and in that was communicated the gospel. When I see the blood, I will pass over you through substitutionary deaths. I will see the shedding of the blood of another, and I will pass over you. That was clear gospel preaching to their souls. They had the gospel in the Day of Atonement, didn't they? every time when they were finally going through the wilderness and Moses had arranged all the aspects of tabernacle worship and set up the ordination of the Levites and things began to unfold all the time, all the time when they, they came to that annual Day of Atonement, they had the gospel preached to them in a wonderful fashion. They had the gospel of the morning and evening sacrifices every day at the tabernacle. They had the gospel of various offerings such as the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and so on. They had the gospel in the work of the priest. They had the gospel in the furniture of the tabernacle. They had the gospel in the cleansing of a leper if they ever witnessed that. They had the gospel preached to them in the manna that came from heaven. Preached to them in the rock that followed them in the wilderness providing water for them. They had the gospel when the brazen serpent was lifted up and they were told to behold it. Look and live. And they had the gospel preached over and over and over and over again. And Paul's saying, Unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. They had the gospel preached just like we do. So, he's, he's, he's bringing this together. In other words, he's not wanting them to think they had more or they had less. I think that's kind of bottom line. Don't think because they had all these miracles that they had more. Or don't think because you live in the New Testament era that somehow you have way more that makes this great disparity. There's a difference, yes, but bottom line... They have the gospel. You have the gospel. What are you going to do with it? So that's what the Israelites had. Then we come to what the Israelites did not have. What did they not have? We're told, aren't we, the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Yes, no faith. They, you have the gospel. They had the gospel. Their carcasses fell in the wilderness and they perished because they didn't have faith. Implication, this is the one thing you need to be worried about. This is the one thing you can't fall short of. It blows apart any idea of universalism, doesn't it? The idea that everyone will be saved by the unrestrained benevolence of God to all people. Nope. no, nope, that's not going to happen. There's good news. There's good news. That good news gets preached. But, but it must be believed. It must be believed. The gospel and faith are distinct issues. They're distinct. The communication of the gospel, the good news, I think sometimes when we come to Christmas and Easter, people don't get this. It's it's like, oh look, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, the reminder of the Son of God taking on flesh, or the reminder of His 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 work upon the cross and His resurrection. And they imagine that in the good news there is salvation, just purely in and of itself, detached from anything else. But there isn't. There has to be faith. There has to be faith. And so, understanding these distinct issues, it means A, the gospel on its own cannot save, and B, faith on its own cannot save. You can't just say, I believe. I'm a believer. I'm a spiritual person. Very good. <laughs> what do you believe? What do you believe? Because if you don't believe that gospel that was preached onto them as well as onto us, then your faith is vain. It has no substance. It has no meaning. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It's, it's a figment of your imagination. It's some message built upon the work of man. It cannot save. So you have. There has to be. There has to be. Believing. The gospel. Faith is the hand that seizes the promises contained in the gospel. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, dealing with saving faith. Paragraph 2 says, The principal acts of saving faith are... Listen, now boys and girls, you need to get this, because you may wonder. You say, say, preacher, I, I, I believe in a certain way. But what you may have is just that you agree with all the Bible says, but you haven't actually latched on and believe to the saving of your soul. You haven't given your heart and life to Christ and say, it's not just I know that Jesus is Lord, I'm not able to say Jesus is my Lord. I've taken Him, believed on Him for myself. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Yes, so note that. You believe, you accept, receive, and rest upon Christ for justification and for sanctification. You say, I want to be more holy. I want to stay consistent. I want to be faithful. This passage is calling you to faithfulness. What do you do? How do you stay faithful? How do you stay faithful? You have to keep on coming to Christ. You have to keep on accepting, receiving, resting. Not in being saved all over again. That's not what I mean. I mean like what I already illustrated before, that the manna comes down daily and you go out and get it because you believe. You know that Christ feasts your soul and so He didn't just save you in the past. He's, he's saving you as you go out and seek Him and believe in Him. So this is what we have. Now the Reformers, they describe the elements of faith under three headings. So you talk about What's faith? You know, in the Reformed, among that, those Reformers, they, they talked about three elements of faith. You want to understand what faith is? It's knowledge. Knowledge, you need to know. You need to know the truth, don't you? I mean, what, what are you going to believe? What, what are your faith in without the knowledge? You need to know. Assent. That means not only do you know it, you agree with it. You say Yes. Okay, I know that the Son of God came into this world and He lived a perfect life and died upon the cross and rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. I know it. I agree. I say, yes, that happened. Then there's trust. Trust. It's where you see it's not just historical in that it happened then. It did. But now it's personal. It is mine. There He is, the Son of God coming into this world for me. I'm dying for me. I'm rising again for me and ascending for me and living for me and praying for me and coming back for me and it's mine. Oh, it's all mine. He's all mine. He's the one my soul loves. You trust. You look, you look into death. You look into the challenges of life. You look into all the ups and downs and, and conditions and circumstances of life you could never have predicted and you, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're trusting. Yes. Do the same thing you did when you first cried out to Him. Say, I believe you can save my soul. I believe you can wash away my sins. I believe you dealt with them. Lord, and you can give me perfect righteousness. I believe all that and I trust you for it. And then you keep on trusting. It's a contact with a dear brother I've known for many years. Brother in ministry, and he was giving me an update on his circumstances. And I, He's not in active ministry right now, and, and for reasons relating to his health. And all I could do was reply in the email I said, That's a heavy providence, brother. That's a heavy providence. And I asked him, How are you making ends meet? How are you providing for the family? And his response, and I'm paraphrasing, was, he said, it is a heavy providence. The Lord is faithful. And I preached it. I preached all this. I preached to the people. You can trust Him. He'll provide. And I'm having to live out my own sermons. Trust the God I preached to others. Very quickly, there is also here the guarantee for the future. It tells us in verse 3, For we which have believed to enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Note that it does not say that they have entered. We which have believed have entered. That would make it past tense. Done work. Completed. Nor does it say shall enter. That would make it future. and Something they are waiting to happen. Instead, it's, it's like this. We enter into the rest who believe. That's the literal sense of it. We enter into the rest who believe. And a. W. Pink then describes it as, "quote, an abstract statement of doctrinal fact." An abstract statement of doctrinal fact. In other words, he, he's pulling away the sense of 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 the when. He's saying this is the reality because because his point, the point of the apostle, is this: you need to believe what you've heard and keep on believing. And you enter in, in one sense, yes, as you believe in Christ. There's a certain entering in there, but but you're not sure, there's nothing no one is aware or can like finish it off for sure until you actually enter in. Right? The promises are still ahead. There are things that you await. And so you have to again back to chapter three, verse six. Hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, I know, I know you speak in this way and you say, Are you saying you can be saved and lost? And then maybe saved all over again. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just preaching the text. I'm just letting it come to you as it is. The danger, the worry, the concern of Paul is that people are going away. And he is trying to grab hold of them. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Do not do it. Because, because Judas, Judas was there. My, he had all the... It looked like he had, he had the real thing. Well, he didn't keep going on, and so he went to his own place. And he, and he switches it up. He kind of switches up Psalm 95 because he puts it when he quotes it in verse 3 in the positive, doesn't he? As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. That's not how the Psalm 95 puts it. It puts it in the negative there, but now he puts it in the positive In other words, if you believe, you enter into the rest. They didn't believe, they didn't enter into rest. Now I'm putting it positively. Believe, enter the rest. The factor is faith. True faith. And the one factor that keeps you out is unbelief. Which, as I close, that's the only thing that keeps you out is unbelief. And sometimes we get it into our minds, maybe there's someone here, and you've thought this. You get into your mind that I have this big dark secret in my past, and that sin, or those sins, they're going to keep me out of God's heaven. I say to you, only if you don't believe, your call, the call of God to you, the call of Christ to you, the call of the preacher is believe. Believe. Don't stand away and think that you've out sinned the grace of God, where sin abounds. Grace does much more abound. Christ doesn't go to the woman at the well who's had five husbands and the man you're with is not your husband. He doesn't go and say, you know, you were fine up until number three, but after that, no go. doesn't say that. No. <laughs> Communicates, come and drink of the water that I give and you'll never thirst again. Believe, woman, just believe. She does. She does. And oh, a burden lifted off her shoulders that day. Come see a man who told me all things ever I did. Is this not the Christ? You have to meet this man. He will change your life as he has changed mine. Only believe. Oh, friend, can you not see the cross of Christ is enough? It's enough. It's enough for all the big sins. All the big sins. The only one you don't get a pass on is persevering in unbelief. Now, you've, you've not believed up until this point, perhaps. You've, you've, you've gone 10 years, 20 years, 30 years not believing. But, but, you repent, you believe in Christ, all that can be dealt with. It's when you die unbelieving. Of course, your problem is you don't know when your, your time is up, and when He's going to call your number, as it were so that's why the when, and it'll come up again, is today. Today. When do you enter into the rest? Today. When do you believe in Christ? Today. When do you trust Him? Today. Today. You don't wait. You don't wait around here. As I say, you can afford to fall short in everything else. You cannot afford to come up short here. You can't. If you do, you will perish everlastingly. You will join... You will join all the wicked, wretched, irreligious, vile sinners of this planet in the caverns of the damned, and you'll join a whole bunch of church members that are there as well. You need to believe and believe today. Let's bow together in prayer. The book of Hebrews has many challenging and deep verses that the best of theologians can wrestle with, but it also has extraordinarily plain, blunt language, and I hope you haven't missed it this morning. You can fall short on everything and anything else don't come up short here believe christ will receive you fully and give you a free and complete pardon god i pray bless thy word oh god please let not any here not enter into That rest. I beg of thee that every last one, every boy, every girl, every young person, every older person, everyone who's been born in the church and others who've come in later in life into the church, everyone who, the matter, condition, or state of life, I pray in Jesus' name they will enter into the promised rest, believing on Christ to the saving of their souls. Hide thy word in our hearts. May we carry it around that it may do us good and profit us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.